Welcome to Catacomb Theology, a podcast exploring all manners of Christianity as it relates to the church and world of today, as well as how it is related to the church and world of the past. Today we are going to continue in our series on the Heritage of Anglican Theology by J.I. Packer, excuse me, by J.I. Packer. We will be continuing in chapter two, which kind of gives a bit of a deep dive into the reformational thoughts of the reformers, especially um, as applicable to the Church of England, the 39 articles, their positions, their deviations from the Roman Church and doctrine, and many, many other um, concepts. We will be, this will be having another episode um, next Monday on a different topic that I have yet to choose, but will soon be chosen. But until then, I invite you to sit back and grab a cup of coffee and enjoy this next chapter of J.I. Packer's Heritage of Anglican Theology. Chapter 2, The English Reformation. Historical background of the English Reformation. And now, on to the English Reformation. As with all the developments and phases of Anglican theology, we need to know the historical background. The Monarchs. In 1532, Henry VIII, seeking a divorce, appointed a Cambridge theologian his Archbishop of Canterbury. That Cambridge theologian who had drunk deeply from the theology of Luther, was Thomas Cranmer. Henry took a great shine to Cranmer, and the influence of Cranmer reached the point where he could say almost anything to Henry as an expression of his own views, provided he said it deferentially, in a spirit of obedience to the monarch, and with the implicit bottom line being, but of course, your majesty, what you think is more important than what I think, just as what you do is more important than anything I do. Acknowledging royal supremacy was required of all subjects under the Tudor monarchy, and indeed, for centuries before that, Henry VIII was a Tudor monarch, and that was what he expected of all his subjects, total obedience based on a full-scale recognition that the king was what we would call a dictator in his own kingdom, an absolute monarch. You could not challenge what the king said. And Cranmer did not. He simply told the king differentially his thoughts about this or that. Cranmer concentrated on making an edition of the English Bible available in England for everyone to read. Like all the reformers, he thought reformation begins with the scriptures and with getting everybody literate in the scriptures. But Henry VIII had abandoned William Tyndale to martyrdom in Flanders in 1536 for his work in translating the Bible. Henry's private view was that it was a very dangerous and unhelpful thing to make the Bible available in the vernacular. People reading it would get all sorts of ideas that might incite them to challenge the monarchs. It was better that they not read scripture. Nevertheless, because Henry liked Cranmer, and despite having not prevented the death of Tyndale, who had translated three-quarters of the Bible by the time he was martyred, Henry did indulge Cranmer at this point and allowed the archbishop to arrange for a lightly edited version of Tyndale's Bible printed in a large, a very large folio called the Great Bible. 
It was a little over two feet from top to bottom and 18 inches from side to side. A copy of the Great Bible was placed in every parish church in the country so that everybody who could read might go to the church building, find the Bible there, and read it. We do not know how much Bible reading was actually done. We simply know that in 1539, the Great Bible was placed there. This was, as far as England was concerned, the real significant beginning of Reformation. As for doctrine, nothing effectively was done at all under Henry VIII. But when Henry died and Edward VI became the monarch at the age of nine, the Reformation had its head because the Duke of Somerset, who was Edward VI's guardian and agent in governing England, was sympathetic to the reformers' purposes. Somerset, in his mild way, and many other aristocrats in a much more forthright way, wanted to carry on with the policy of closing monasteries that Henry VIII had started and collaring the monastic wealth in lands, a policy that continued throughout the reign of Edward VI. But Cranmer was supported by Somerset, and Cranmer produced, with the help of a circle of folk with reforming interests, two versions of the prayer book, first a 1549 edition, then a second edition in 1552, much more explicitly reformational than the 1549 prayer book. The second edition was produced in light of various theologians' criticisms of the 1549 book's inadequacies. Cranmer also drafted, with the help of others, again, the 42 articles, which were revised finally in 1571 to become the 39 articles we have today. He also produced the 1547 book of homilies, which came out straight away when Edward VI became the ruler. It contained 12 homilies, some of them written by Cranmer, of which the first six deal with, one, the importance of reading Holy Scripture, two, the universality of sin and need of salvation, three, the salvation of mankind through justification by faith, four, the nature of faith, five, good works, how they must follow from faith, though they cannot justify us on their own, they are necessary signs that faith is genuine, and no professed faith that fails to bring forth good works can be regarded as genuine. And six, Christian love and charity, the focus of good works, must be on neighbor love in all the forms that it takes. You can surely see that those six homilies constitute instruction in the basics of the gospel, and this was what Cranmer wanted English people to have. In addition to the articles, the prayer book, and the homilies, Cranmer produced a code of canon law, the Reformatio Legium, as it was called, which was never put before Parliament or Convocation, the governing body of the Church at the time. It was produced at the end of Edward VI's reign, but was not legislated because Edward died, Mary became queen, and reformational gestures were simply ruled out while she reigned. Canon law is the church's own law, made for itself to guide in administration and management, and all procedures and resolution of conflicts, perplexities, and so on. Every church has its own set of rules, and in Anglicanism, as in the Roman Catholic Church, they are everywhere called canon law. 
Canon is a church word that means rule, just as it does when we talk about the canon of scripture. Cranmer was working a way to make the most of the situation while Edward VI was on the throne, and all systems were go for reformation in England. Cranmer wanted a Church of England with 10,000 federated parishes all around the country, all functioning according to a knowledge of biblical teaching about the gospel through constant reading and preaching of the scriptures. He wanted procedures in the church to be in line with scripture, and he wanted to eliminate all erroneous elements left over from the pre-Reformation English church, elements that reflected what was happening in various parts of the Roman-based church. But then, as I have said, Mary came to the throne in 1553 before Cranmer's Reformation could be firmly established. Mary tried to turn the clock back, and she burned Englishmen for their convictions, which soured the people toward Roman Catholicism. Then, in 1558, Elizabeth I came to the throne. She was politically very shrewd, and had very shrewd advisors. She discerned what the people wanted and gave it to them. She restored Cranmer's 1552 prayer book with only a few minor verbal changes. There are actually only three. And she, through her bishops, sought to ensure that the whole of England would settle for a national religion in this reformed shape. Her interest in music promoted the choral tradition of major churches and congregational singing was encouraged. Meanwhile, recusant Roman Catholics refused to conform to the Church of England. Many of them were connected with major aristocratic families with big estates in the country, yet they kept a low profile. Some of them even went to their parish churches on Sunday because the law of the land required it. There was a penal code whereby you were fined a shilling in the first instance and more for later offenses if you did not show up in church on Sunday. But in general, as I have said, the Catholics kept their heads down. Some Protestants wanted to go further than the prayer book had gone in certain directions. In the 1560s, they came to be called Puritans, the people who wanted greater purity in the church than the prayer book gave them. Puritan was a derogatory term, part of the vocabulary of abuse. The Puritans were a large minority, but only a minority. They pursued change through expressing their minds in convocation or in appeals to Parliament, or by putting up members of Parliament who would introduce reforming bills. But Elizabeth, by one means or another, ensured that they never affected change. At the end of her reign, there was a firmly reformed, though moderate, settlement in the Church of England, with Puritans unsuccessfully seeking particular reforms in Anglican worship and church administration. Elizabeth had taken care to appoint archbishops and bishops who would keep the Puritans in check, but she made just one mistake. She appointed Edmund Grindle, a vigorous Protestant, as Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1570s, then told him that he must put down the preaching meetings organized by Puritan followers. Elizabeth was convinced that allowing preaching to go on unhindered would create instability in the country. She had the same feeling about preaching that Henry VIII had about Bible reading, which Henry had indulged only because Cranmer wanted it, but Elizabeth did not indulge what Grindle wanted. When she told him to put down these preaching meetings, Grindle replied, in effect, 
Honestly, Your Majesty, I can't bring myself to do it because preaching is of such benefit to the church, and it is faithful preaching. It is exposition and application of scripture from beginning to end. I will say more about those meetings called prophesyings when we look closer at the Puritans. Elizabeth's response to that was to sequester her bishop. She confined him to his house and stopped his stipend, diverting it into the royal treasury. That is what sequestration means, redirecting funds to a central treasury that otherwise would have gone to a person. Though you do not hear of the sequestration of funds into the royal treasury nowadays, in Anglican circles, you do sometimes hear of the sequestration of funds from parish churches into the diocesan treasury. Elizabeth, not wanting to repeat the mistake of her Grendel appointment, then appointed John Whitgift, a very stout Protestant but a very stiff-headed masterly man, to be her Archbishop of Canterbury. Whitgift suppressed everything she wanted suppressed, and so he lasted out her reign. The Theologians During Henry's reign, 1509-1547, William Tyndale was convinced, partly because he was adept at languages and partly because he was a serious, biblically-minded priest who, of course, was able to read the Bible in Hebrew and in Greek, that what England needed most was a vernacular translation of the Bible. However, nobody in England would encourage him in this aim. All the church dignitaries knew that Henry VIII would oppose such a project, so they were not prepared to back it. Therefore, Tyndale went overseas to Lutheran communities to do his translation, and he made brilliant progress. As mentioned earlier, Tyndale was martyred in 1536. He had already completed the New Testament, which came out in 1525, and the Pentateuch, and he had done some of the history books following the Pentateuch. His translation was later completed for the Great Bible by Miles Coverdale, and it was Coverdale's completion of Tyndale's work, without Tyndale's name attached to it, that Cranmer produced out of his back pocket, so to speak, to be printed as the Great Bible when Henry allowed that project. Tyndale's theology was first-class Luther thought, and he was a systematic thinker in a way that Luther was not. His expositions of justification by faith, good works as flowing from faith, and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper as the seals of God's covenant, which we enter into and live in by faith, are as good as you get anywhere. To read Tyndale's work is both a surprise and a delight. His English is fresh and easy to understand. He had a gift for making theology simple. He also provided prefaces to the books of the Bible as he translated them. Many of those prefaces are essentially translations of Luther's prefaces written for the German Bible. That is particularly true of the preface to Romans, which is word for word Luther. Tyndale adds hardly anything. While Tyndale was out of the country, in the 1520s, Luther was still raising great clouds of dust in Germany. He had become a public figure overnight in the German-speaking world, and very soon he was a public figure in the whole of Western Europe. He came to be regarded as public enemy number one by the papacy, but he was viewed as a hero by many church people in Germany and beyond. Luther began to attain this prominence in 1517 when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church. 
Soon they were pirated by printers and circulated all through the German-speaking world in tract form. The German-speaking world was unhappy with the heavy financial exactions of the papacy. Taxes levied and the money going off to Rome, much of it to build St. Peter's Basilica. The last straw was for Tetzel's sale of indulgences. Buying an indulgence was a matter of handing over your money in exchange for the promise that you would thereby release someone straight away for many hundreds or thousands of years in purgatory. Tetzel's indulgences could be bought not only for yourself, but also for any relatives you wanted to name. This is the same principle on which the Mormons are now baptized for their and your dead relatives and ancestors. They believe that thereby they are guaranteeing that those persons will be part of their own great family in heaven. While a lot of simple people bought indulgences and Tetzel effectively raised money for St. Peter's in Rome, many more thoughtful people were simply disgusted at what he was doing. Luther's theses were focused on the issue of indulgences and all the theological questions that the practice raised. It is easy to see why his 95 Theses were so appreciated and therefore passed around Germany in pamphlet form, becoming the center of the tremendous conflict in which Luther found himself engaged and which went on until he was declared a heretic and put under the ban in 1521 by the Diet of Worms. German-speaking dukes and their dukedoms began to reform their realms in the direction that Luther marked out, and the Reformation in Germany had truly begun. In England, a group of Cambridge teachers were very interested in all this, and they secured, read, and discussed Luther's various writings in meetings at the White Horse Inn in Cambridge. Their number included Thomas Cranmer, Robert Barnes, Thomas Bilney, John Frith, and Matthew Parker, who became Elizabeth's first Archbishop of Canterbury in due course. They all belonged to the White Horse Inn Company, as did Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Bilney, a lively little man, was at first the center of this group. He had read his Luther and his Bible and had experienced assurance through coming to understand the truth of justification by faith, the central concern Luther focused on and talked about which therefore the White Horse Inn Company talked about. Ridley was of the same mind in sharing this understanding with Barnes and Frith with Cranmer and Parker and also with Latimer generating interest. Bilney had an original way of sharing it with Latimer. He asked Latimer, would you hear my confession? Latimer, an ordained man, said, yes, of course I will. Bilney then got on his knees and made a confession of faith through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, therefore a confession of assurance, of forgiveness, of all the sins that he went on to mention. This stunned Latimer, and he inquired and very soon was convinced that, yes, this is the truth. Latimer, a great preacher who was made Bishop of Worcester in 1535, did much to publicize the to which Bilney had introduced him. Then there was Ridley, probably the best-read scholar in the whole group. Cranmer was a good scholar. Ridley was, I think, a better one. There they were. Then there was Ridley, probably the best-read scholar in the whole group. Cranmer was a good scholar. Ridley was, I think, a better one. There they were, then, the White Horse Inn community in Cambridge in the 1520s, 
learning the doctrine of justification by faith according to Luther, which is the doctrine according to Paul in Romans and Galatians. They had come to know what the gospel was, and they shared in the dream of passing it on. Of this group, Bilney, Frith, and Barnes were put to death as traitors by Henry VIII because of the freedom with which they critiqued the version of Christianity that Henry, who fancied himself a theologian, was defending. Henry was given the title Defensor Fidei, Defender of the Faith, by the Pope for a book that he wrote defending the seven sacraments and the medieval doctrine of how the sacraments benefited those who share in them. And Bill Frith and Barnes were injudicious. I need not go into all the details of the martyrdom. Suffice it to say that they were executed by fire. Bill Nee and Frith as traitors because in the interest of their theology they defied the crown. And Barnes as a heretic because he defied the crown theologically. Cranmer, Henry's archbishop, could not prevent Henry from doing what Henry wanted to do, and Cranmer believed, as a matter of conscience, that when the monarch made a decision, all his subjects, including archbishops of Canterbury, ought to obey and accept it without demur. Whatever their private views, their first duty to God was to obey the monarch. That was the mindset with which Cranmer lived until the final crisis of his life when Mary directed him to renounce the Protestant doctrine of the Lord's Supper and to embrace once again transubstantiation and the whole Catholic doctrine of the Mass. That was something which, as a result of years of study, Cranmer found himself consciously unable to do. His instinct, as with Henry, so with Mary, was to harmonize the two realities of keeping his own views intact and good conscience while obeying the sovereign as his first duty under God. This, however, was not possible when Mary pressured him the way she did. Mary required him to sign statements recanting the doctrines that hitherto he had affirmed regarding the Lord's Supper. And for a time Cranmer in prison, and due to be burned as a heretic, lost his footing. That is the only way to say it. He had understood that if he thoroughly recanted, as his monarch was requiring him to do, his life would be spared. He would not be burned, but after he had signed six recantations, he learned Mary's fuller mind. She had decided that because he had been Archbishop of Canterbury and had led so many Englishmen astray, he would have to be burned anyway. Cranmer sat up, riding all through the night before his burning. It was thought that he was writing the final recantation to read out in church immediately prior to his being burned in Broad Street, Oxford. In the morning, he was taken in disgrace into St. Mary's Church, and his errors and the evil he had done were proclaimed from the pulpit. Cranmer had to stand there and listen to the charges. He was then invited to read his recantation before the many people and dignitaries who had come to witness this event. When Cranmer read aloud, what he had written during the night. It was a recanting of all the recantations he had signed, a very heroic gesture on his part. When the congregation in the church realized what he was saying, they howled, refusing to let him speak further. Cranmer then walked quickly out of the church toward the stake, with the crowd behind him. He reached the site, then stood waiting to be chained to the stake and burned. When the fire was set to blazing, he quietly extended his right hand into the flames so that it should be burned first. Why? Because his right hand had signed all the recantations he was now recanting. 
And while the hand was being burned, people heard him saying over and over, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand. Under Edward VI, who reigned from 1547 to 1553, Cranmer had remained Archbishop of Canterbury. Latimer, by then an elderly man, had given up the See of Worcester, but was still preaching Reformation truth in broad terms, and Ridley was still a bishop. John Bradford, a young man converted at Cambridge, was appointed by Archbishop Cranmer to be one of six preachers to tour the country and preach everywhere, proclaiming the doctrines of the Reformation. Bradford was a first-class preacher and theologian. His works, very reformational and very sound in their judgment, fill two volumes. He was also one of the people Mary burned. Under Edward, Cranmer brought a succession of top continental theologians to England to occupy positions of distinction and help in the work of reforming the church by drawing up a new set of formularies. The Italian Peter Martyr Vermigli became Regis Professor of Theology at Oxford. He fled England when Mary came to the throne. The German Martin Bucer, who had been a Reformation pastor in Strasbourg, he became Regis Professor of Theology at Cambridge. Francis Dryander, the adopted name of Francisco de Enzinas, a Spaniard, became reader in Greek in the University of Cambridge. Johannes Alasco, Jan Lasky, a Pole, was a member of an aristocratic family. He came to England in the first instance to be pastor of what was called the Strangers Church, the church for European expatriates in London. He was a theologian, and his comments, along with those of others, were sought when the 1549 prayer book came out, making way for an extensively revised prayer book that appeared in 1552. Under Elizabeth, however, new names appear in the list of notable theologians. John Jewell had quietly imbibed Reformation theology during Mary's reign of terror. Afterward, as Bishop of Salisbury, he wrote an apology for the Church of England, which effectively defended the Elizabethan religious settlement as being true to the Bible and to the Fathers. It demonstrated the rightness of parting company with the contemporary Roman Church on various points. John Whitgift, as I have mentioned, was made Archbishop of Canterbury by Elizabeth in due course. He died in 1604, the year after Elizabeth's death. Richard Hooker was a protege of John Jewell. Jewell sent Hooker to Oxford for theological education because he thought Hooker was brilliant. Hooker was ordained and became an Anglican clergyman according to the requirements of the prayer book. He became the great defender theologically of the Elizabethan religious settlement. We will later look more closely at Hooker. His work far surpassed what any other Englishman had done in the Reformation era. Hooker was magisterial, a kind of mountaintop in Anglican theology, which is why I will later give a fairly full presentation of what he affirmed. A thoroughly reformational theologian, Hooker built his teaching on a very broad base of philosophic wisdom and truth drawn from the scriptures. Hooker's friend Richard Field also wrote a treatise on the church that stands alongside Hooker's own. William Whitaker was the Regis Professor of Theology in Cambridge at the end of Elizabeth's reign. 
His disputation on Scripture is a 500-page argument for the authority of Scripture understood the way I invited you to understand it earlier. That God in Scripture tells us things, and through interpreting Scripture by Scripture, we learn what those things are. The Trigger of English Reformation Theology Where did the theology of the Reformation start? It started with the unreformed faith of the church based in Rome, and of which the church in England was a part prior to Henry VIII. That meant that the ordinary theology taught in ordinary parishes to ordinary congregations by ordinary clergymen was something like this. First of all, we are all sinners, and the last judgment is certain. So what we must do as a life project is to get rid of our sins. How are we to do that? God in his mercy has provided a method, a fairly elaborate method, whereby we may get rid of our guilt and so finally come to glory in happiness and joy. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for the sin of the world, and Jesus Christ has instituted the church, which through its ministrations mediates the fruit of his atoning death to needy souls like us. How does it happen? It happens through the sacraments. They are signs and seals of the grace of God, signs and seals guaranteeing its reality. And more than that, signs and seals actually conveying the blessing that they signify. When we are baptized, that is, when the sacrament of baptism is administered by one of those whom God has appointed as priests for the purpose, original sin is forgiven. And in some sense, never defined in the medieval era, the process of regeneration begins. The church's central act of worship is the sacrament of the Eucharist at the altar. For centuries, this has been called the Mass. In the Mass, first of all, the bread and wine are taken and transubstantiated. That is, they have their substance changed by an act of God so that though they continue to look like bread and wine, they are now really the body and blood of Christ. The outward appearance is no index to the reality that is there. The second thing that happens in the Mass is that the priest offers the transubstantiated bread and wine to God. He elevates the host. The Latin word for this host, hostia, means victim. In the elevation of the bread, it changes into the body of Christ and becomes the victim. This means that the very act of elevation links the church, all those who are present in the service, to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. What sort of link is it? Nobody really knows, and the theologians had different views. It is a mystery, but it is a glorious mystery. The mystery of the continuing forgiveness of sins. Then the priest partakes of the bread and wine, remembering what Jesus said in relation to it, namely, eat and drink. In some forms of the Mass, the congregation is invited to receive the bread, though not the wine. A priest who knew his doctrine would explain to the congregation what was happening in the Mass. Through their being present at the Mass while the priest did what he did, the people received the benefit of renewed forgiveness of sins to date. They also received in some mysterious way new energy from God. The imagery of bread, after all, does mean something. Bread is the staff of life, and being present at the Mass somehow imparts energy to the soul. Christians were taught that every Sunday, 
They must be at Mass because this is the one thing the Lord Jesus told his church to do as a regular act of worship. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. There were also, besides baptism and the Eucharist, five more sacraments. In confirmation, the bishop lays his hands on those baptized in infancy and thereby admits them to the fellowship of those who may partake of the Lord's Supper. And there is a grace attached to that. The Holy Spirit is given through the laying on of the bishop's hands. In the sacrament of ordination, something comparable takes place. Hands are ceremonially laid on an individual, and a special blessing of the Holy Spirit is given. Then there is marriage, where through the exchange of vows, something spiritual happens. The wedding ring given by the bridegroom to the bride is the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace given to bond the two persons together, which is what marriage is all about. Extreme unction, now known as anointing of the sick, also is a sacrament for when people near death's door. It is important that holy oil be used to anoint them. That, again, is the outward and visible sign of a special blessing of the Spirit to enable them to die in peace and with fortitude and faith. Penance is a sacrament, often now referred to as reconciliation, in which a sinner contritely confesses sins to God in the presence of a priest, receives absolution for his or her sin, and is then assigned by the priest acts of penance, perhaps charity, prayer, or forms of asceticism, which serve to expiate or make satisfaction for the sin. That is what people were taught, and that is what the reformers, in working through their theology and applying it to the ongoing worshipping life of the Church of England, were seeking to correct point after point. Affirmations of English Reformation Theology what did these reformers affirm as a basis for their corrective activity? Scripture and authority. They said that the Bible is God's word, in which he tells us things we need to know. We learn to understand that word by letting scripture interpret scripture. The canonical scripture is a single theological texture in which the various parts throw light on each other. Scripture, they continued, is sufficient for salvation and sufficient for shaping every Christian's faith. In the 39 articles, which remember are Cranmer's 42 slimmed down, the place of Scripture is introduced in the sixth article. Of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation, it states, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. There you have the article handing the reformers what I call the Reformation Chopper, whereby they chopped off from the life of the church all the unbiblical extras that were being taught and assumed necessary to salvation or regarded at least as helpful toward salvation, as blessings and not stumbling blocks. The 39 articles go on to appeal to scripture on point after point. Article 20 refers to scripture as God's word written. And in article 21, the fact is bewailed that general church councils are not all governed by the spirit and word of God, so that they may sometimes err. 
Wherefore, things ordained by them as necessary to salvation have neither strength nor authority, unless it may be declared that they be taken out of Holy Scripture. This was a Reformation statement against the view of the Council of Trent. When Article 21 was ratified, when the whole Code was ratified in 1563, by then, Rome's Council of Trent had concluded, having met periodically from 1545 to 1563, the agenda for the Council of Trent was that of redefining the whole Roman Catholic faith against the supposed errors of the Reformers. Trent asserted that Holy Scripture and Holy Tradition are to be given equal veneration as sources of the faith of the Church, a position repeatedly restated by the Church. Tradition is, of course, still desirable in order to benefit from the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given in the past for the understanding of Scripture, but tradition itself is to be judged by Scripture. Everything that the Church says or has said is to be judged by Scripture, even the three ecumenical creeds. That is affirmed in the 8th article of the 39 articles. These creeds are most certainly to be believed, says the article, because they may be proved by certain warrants of Holy Scripture. So in the Church of England, Scripture is to have the last word in relation to everything. The role of reason is not really addressed in the 39 Articles. No Anglican theologian offered a full-scale discussion of reason until Hooker. What he said about reason was no more than this, that reason is the power of judgment God has given to us all to enable us to find our way through the thickets of intellectual confusion in understanding scripture and formulating the church's theology. Reason is given to take us back to scripture for judgment of the various things said in the church and God's name. Reason, in other words, is a tool whereby understanding is gained, but reason is not an independent source of insight. Not until the 19th century did Anglican theologians begin saying in a serious way that reason is an independent source of insight and that there are times when reason must be allowed to modify our view of scripture. There was nothing like that in the view of reason that Anglican theologians embraced in the 16th century. Grace and Justification Another principle in this reformational theology has to do with grace and justification. Grace is a word that points back not simply to scripture, but also to the theology of Augustine of Hippo, whom all the English reformers, like all the continental reformers, believed to be the best theologian of the early Christian centuries. Augustine, next to the Bible, was the authoritative source of old to whom they made constant appeal. The distinctive thing about Augustine was his insistence that all salvation is from grace from first to last. The grace which means that God's loving initiative generates the response it seeks. Grace is nothing less than that, according to Augustine. If you think of the salvation history that climaxed in one sense at the cross where sin was put away, or if you think of the individual soul's pilgrimage whereby one becomes spiritually alive and responsive to God, or if you think of the ongoing life of the church, which after all is only a fellowship of believing sinners, in all those areas the initiative of God and grace is the first thing to celebrate. If it were not for grace, there would be no atonement. There would be no personal salvation. 
there would be no renewal of heart or gift of faith and love, and there would be no ongoing church. Yet within the frame of that doctrine of grace, Augustine had found room for the idea that through the ministrations of the church centering on the sacraments, God enables individuals, sinful souls like you and me, to gain merit before God through the good works that his grace enables us to do. Our justification is thus a complex reality that begins with the forgiveness of sins when we are baptized and then is continued as we practice good works and thereby build up a merit balance to cancel the demerit balance of our sins. In this way we finally come to heaven, our merit balance having got us there where our justification is complete. We are in the black, so to speak, merit-wise with God, and so we are in glory through grace but yet through the personal merit that God's grace has enabled us to achieve. The reformers saw all that as contrary to scripture, so they simply struck it out. They said instead, following Luther at this point, that justification, as Paul speaks of it, is a present blessing. It is a blessing based entirely on the righteousness and atoning death of Jesus Christ. The nature of the blessing is that... It is a gift of forgiveness of sins and acceptance of our person. The gift is given through faith in the gospel promise, the proclamation that God forgives the sins of all who are penitent and who put their trust in Jesus Christ and his death. For the reformers, putting your trust in Christ means putting your trust in the promise of forgiveness of sins that has the atoning achievement of Christ at its center. Fellowship with Christ in personal terms is, so to speak, the next item beyond that. The Reformers believed in personal fellowship with Christ in the way that modern evangelicals speak of personal fellowship with Christ, the building up of a personal relationship. But when they talked about saving faith, they understood the promise of justification to be that you repent of your former transgressions, you rely on the promise of pardon and acceptance with God, and you rely further on the promise of God to continue his pardon and acceptance even though you remain imperfect and will sin to a degree every day of your life. Your justified status continues. It is given once for all. No reformer expressly said that the question of where you and I are going to spend eternity is settled at the moment of justification, but that was the reformer's for them, justification did mean eternal security and therefore a life of assurance. I know where I am going because God has promised to take me there. I am a believer and I live the life of a justified man. Luther had his own way of saying this. Luther said that what is given in God's act of justification is the righteousness of God understood as a status that has at its heart the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, that is, reckoned to your account, even though it was his achievement and not yours. That is the righteousness of God given us as a gift. In Paul's phrase, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, that is what the righteousness of God amounts to, a status given by virtue of the imputing of the righteousness of Christ. Luther used a Latin phrase, alinium justita, which means another person's righteousness. That is the heart of the gospel, said Luther. 
Through another person's righteousness, we receive the gift of righteousness, a gift predicated upon that other person's righteousness. Righteousness in the sense of a right relationship with God, pardon, and acceptance is now ours because of the righteousness of Christ. The gift of righteousness through the imputed righteousness of Christ is a complex idea, but for the English reformers, as for Luther and then for Calvin and the rest of the reformers, that idea is the unitary core of the gospel of the New Testament as they understood it and proclaimed it. Augustine had been magnificently right about the initiative of grace, but he had been unhappily off course in what he had said about merit. No merit of ours enters into justification, acceptance with God at any stage whatever. The reformers emphasized the merit of Christ because it counters the suggestion that our merit is what gets us to heaven, when in fact we have no merit of our own. For all our life, our daily story is one of demerit, but the righteousness of God continues as his gift to us, and the imputed righteousness of Christ covers all our sins and maintains all our acceptance. That is the Reformer's doctrine of justification. That is what the White Horse Inn folk were picking up and digesting and making their own back in the 1520s. It is the doctrine theologians in the know in the 1530s through the 1550s affirmed as the doctrine of faith. This was where they put their emphasis, because they were thinking pastorally about how they were going to present this understanding of the gospel message to folk in the parishes, and they were resolved, rightly, sensibly, naturally, to emphasize that salvation is not by works, not by merit, but by faith. That was the way they preached and taught it. Allow me to jump ahead to Hooker and give you a taste of him expounding this doctrine in his famous Learned Discourse of Justification which captures what the Anglican reformers, without exception, said in one form or another about justification. Although in ourselves we be altogether sinful and unrighteous, yet even the man who in himself is impious, full of iniquity, full of sin, him being found in Christ through faith and having his sin in hatred through repentance, him God beholdeth with a gracious eye, putteth away his sin by not imputing it, taketh quite away the punishment due there unto by pardoning it, and accepteth him in Jesus Christ as perfectly righteous, as if he had fulfilled all that is commanded him in the law. Shall I say more perfectly righteous than if himself had fulfilled the whole law? I must take heed what I say, but the apostle saith, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Such we are in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted folly, or frenzy, or fury, or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this that man hath sinned, and God hath suffered, that God hath made himself the sin of men, and that men are made the righteousness of God. In Hooker's opening words of that paragraph where he speaks of the altogether sinful person being found in Christ, you have one notion that the earlier reformers had not stressed. But for a sound doctrine of justification, you have to stress it. 
It is the notion of union with Christ as the basis for this imputing of his righteousness to us, and for this bestowal of the gift of righteousness, which rests on that imputation and our continued acceptance with God, because the status achieved by the act of justification continues. It is all grounded on the fact that now, according to the New Testament phraseology, we are in Christ, united to him, and therefore in communion with him, sharing his resurrection life and sharing his acceptance before the Father. Hooker is very strong on that. His exposition of justification puts the capstone on the edifice of the doctrine that all the other reformers contributed to making. The reformers were not making much of the doctrine of regeneration, though they certainly affirmed that regeneration is reality. They affirmed that baptism is a sign of it, and when in the 19th century controversy between a clergyman and his bishop, an evangelical scholar named William Goode wrote a book titled The Effects of Infant Baptism, he showed in detail that the reformers believed most certainly in the reality of regeneration, renewal of heart that comes from faith and repentance, and all that new disposition which is the mark of the believer. However, Though the reformers believed that baptism is a sign of all of that, they did not believe that anyone who has been baptized should be judged regenerate without faith. Church and Sacraments The reformers defined the church as a fellowship of believers. The medieval idea had been that the church is the community of those who share authentic sacraments administered by priests in the apostolic succession. Article 19 of the 39 Articles declares the visible church of God is a company, that is, a community of faithful men, that is, believers, persons full of faith, in which the pure word of God is preached, and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance. The reformers believed that the signs of the authentic church of Christ could not be seen at all in the unreformed church of Rome, an extreme position from which Hooker later withdrew, but in terms of this double requirement, the pure word of God being preached and the sacraments being duly administered according to Christ's ordinance, which means the Lord's Supper as we today know it in place of the Mass, a strong case could be made for saying that the signs of the authentic Church of Christ were indeed missing in the Church of Rome. The Reformers defined the sacraments as signs and seals of blessings, but they work says article 25 of the 39 by being means to faith they are means of grace because they become means to faith that is a way of saying they do us no good unless they stir up our faith unless we receive them with faith and exercise faith in the blessings and the lord to which of whom the sacramental signs speak here is the key sentence from article 25 Sacraments ordained of Christ, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper, forget the other five, are certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace in God's goodwill towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. That is the first dimension of God's working invisibly in us through the sacraments. He strengthens and confirms our faith, and it is through our faith that any further blessings signified by the sacraments are given. That is standard Reformed doctrine, as you find it in the fourth book of Calvin's Institutes, 
and a whole series of writings by the reformers, faith and life. We should be clear by now on what the reformers mean. Faith and life. We should be clear by now on what the reformers mean by faith. And your life is to be an expression of your faith, which makes you a disciple of Jesus Christ. He is alive, reigning, risen from the dead, and the source of our life. We are his disciples living in obedience to him. And that means a sustained faith, trust in him for salvation, sustained repentance, and sustained good works. It means love and service in all directions to all needy folk, especially those who are of the household of faith. Worship and Prayer The prayer book is the great legacy of the Reformers when it comes to worship and prayer. The key words that sum up what is intended are doxology, which means giving glory to God, didasticism, which means teaching people the path of discipleship, and dependence, which speaks to the fact that at every point the prayers in the prayer book teach dependence on God for all ability to please him in any way and all ability to practice good works to his glory. You will not be perfect. But you will not even be able to start accept independence on him for his grace and help. The prayer book thus becomes not simply a text for corporate devotion, as when local churches meet on Sunday, but also a text for personal devotion. The prayer book has been used as such from the 16th century to the present day among wise Anglican Christians. Anglicans and Catholicity I mentioned earlier John Jewell's apology for the Church of England, which defended the Elizabethan religious settlement as being true to the Bible and true to the Fathers. Bishop Jewell's apology is the classic reformational statement of the need for reformation in the pattern of church life and belief inherited from the Christian past. Jewell was essentially saying, we Anglicans now have it, and the Church of Rome needs it and he was saying it on behalf of all the reformers. As for Catholicity, the reformers redefined the word Catholic when they used and discussed it. The Roman idea of Catholicity, reaffirmed by the Council of Trent, is that the Catholic Church is that which is in communion with the Bishop of Rome. That is, the definition. The Anglican counter-definition is that the Catholic Church is the whole fellowship of all those who embrace the faith of the Apostles. In the 20th century, if we may jump forward for a moment, Evangelical Anglicans added the thought of embracing the world mission of the Apostles. That too is an aspect of Catholicity. But from the 16th century on, the classic definition of Anglican Catholicity was in terms of doctrine. Being a Catholic is a matter of maintaining the doctrine of the Apostles, neither more nor less. Anglicanism is biblical doctrine without addition or diminution. That said, the Reformers is what we bequeath to our contemporaries and to those who come after. The Reformational Ideal You can see that the Reformation in England sought to be as constructive theologically and spiritually as it was corrective. A real reformation 
of the people of God, corporately and individually. As a Reformation, it was conservative, communal, confessional, and comprehensive. It was conservative because that was the Anglican way, and the Reformers wanted to bring everyone along. It was communal because the Book of Common Prayer was meant to be a Book of Common Worship. Common, in the phrase common prayer, means what it says. Everybody is to join in. There is to be prayer book uniformity all over the country, and that will keep us together as a church community worshiping God. The Reformation was confessional because the 39 Articles are a Reformation confession. In the 16th century, they were regarded as one of the many Reformation confessions being then produced. At the end of the 16th century, a man named John Rogers produced a survey of the confessions of the Protestant world, and the Church of England's 39 articles are included. The Reformation was comprehensive in the sense that this theology and churchly setup were intended to bring the life of God and unity in Christ to all the English people without exception. Very early among the Reformers, you find the distinction being drawn between what is primary and what is secondary. As a matter of private opinion, you may have views on some things that do not quite match what we have in the prayer book, and that is all right, but the prayer book contains the primary material on which we seek to be together. Anglican believers, whether lay or ordained, are not authorized to hold private opinions that contradict the prayer book. That was the Anglican Reformational ideal. Thank you all for tuning in to Catacomb Theology. I hope you enjoyed the chapter just as much as I enjoyed reading it. Um, before I sign off, I wanted to update you guys with a little bit of news. Um, we're going to be creating a Patreon page in the coming week or so. Uh, that will include a very... Uh, we're going to create some different content concepts um, for you guys. That will be for exclusive Patreon supporters. Um, the reason we're doing this is to give you guys some extra content, uh, mix it up a little bit, and also for funding. The Catacomb definitely is going to need some funding in the coming months um, as we try to revamp certain things, improve aspects of the website, and, and get materials and um, pay for services that we're going to need to improve the Catacomb for user experience and to increase the ministry's effectiveness. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes out for that. It will probably include, um, meetings for common prayer on certain days that you can come in and we would do it corporately together and, and things like that. We, we haven't fully figured it out, but that is definitely something that is coming. So keep your eyes out for that. Um, until then, thank you for listening to Catacomb Theology uh, please share us and rate us and review us. That will be very helpful with friends. Um, share us with family. Uh, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to us. It helps us immensely. Thank you all for coming and listening. Thank you for your continued support. God bless you, and I will see you all next week on Catacomb Theology.